The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to take your Bibles now, if you would please, and open them to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21 and verse number 23. Now today we're going to continue our journey in the last week of Jesus' life. Next week we'll fast forward, or back up I should say, 33 years to talk about his birth. But we're here now in the scriptures at the last week of Jesus' life. And uh, we'll talk about this this week, and we will spend many more weeks on this, because what Jesus said and did in the last week was very, very important. He was preparing his disciples with the last teachings that he would give. Uh, He spoke to the religious leaders at that time, and uh, he was always trying to straighten them out on the truth of the gospel. So there are many, many things that we find here in the last week of his life that are very important for us to talk, talk about. And today's topic is one of those of extreme importance, and that is the issue of authority. Who has authority? And this is a very good question to ask because you can be in trouble if you trust the wrong authority. Someone tells you that they have authority over something and they tell you the wrong thing, then you can be in trouble if you trust them. I remember reading in the paper a few weeks ago that there was a man who put a red light in the grill of his pickup truck, and he was driving up and down Highway 101 uh, impersonating a police officer. And what he would do, he would pull up behind the person, and they would see that red light, and he'd pull them over, and then he would go up to the car, and he would rob the driver. Now, you know that when you see those red lights behind you, there is that instant when you freeze, and you know that you have to pull over, and that's because a police officer has the authority to make you pull over to the side of the road. But if that person doesn't have the authority that he says he has, then you can be in very deep trouble. And this is a a problem that just pervades our society. Those who claim to have authority and claim to know something, and they really don't know what they're supposed to know. A few weeks ago, we were uh, doing our outreach training sessions on a Wednesday night, and we were watching a video uh, on the subject of evolution. And it was just amazing how much ignorance abounds on that subject. They were interviewing people from different walks of life. Sometimes they were college students, younger people, and and then also uh, some older adults. And they asked them what they believe about origins or how could they believe that a reptile or a a bird or even man could have once been a one-cell amoeba and then crawled out of the primordial soup, and and that's where we got everybody and all the animals and all that we have today. And it was amazing, as I said, how much ignorance there was on that. But the reason that there is is because those people trust somebody who said they had authority. Uh, The scientists, the evolutionists, the theorists, they trusted them because they said, we know how this happened and we have authority to tell you how that happened. Well, Who you listen to, as I said, is a very important thing, and that's the question that we have in this passage before us today. Where did Jesus get his authority? Why should we listen to him? Now, I hope that if you're asking that question today, that you ask it honestly, 
because those in this passage did not ask honestly, but rather they wouldn't have believed what Jesus said, no matter how much proof that he would give them. So if you look in the scriptures at Matthew 21, verse number 23, and I'm going to ask you to stand one more time. We do this when we read God's word. Uh, The 23rd verse here, and I'm just going to read down to verse number 27, and then in the second part of the message, which we'll come back to in a couple of weeks, we'll get the rest of it. But in verse number 23, and when he was come into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came unto him as he was teaching and said, by what authority doest thou these things? And who gave thee this authority? And Jesus answered and said unto them, I also will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I and likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, whence was it, from heaven or of men? And they reasoned with themselves, saying, If we shall say from heaven, he will say unto us, Why did ye not then believe him? But if we shall say of men, we fear the people, for all hold John as a prophet. And they answered Jesus and said, We cannot tell. And he said unto them, Neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. Father, help us as we look into your word today. Give us wisdom and open up our hearts to receive it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, let's get our bearings a little bit here to see where we've been as we've been talking about this last week of Jesus' life. Everything that's taken place up to this point is purposeful and preliminary to the conversation that takes place in this passage. The, the, the question of authority arose because on Sunday morning, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey to the adulation of the crowds. And as he came in, uh, the crowd shouted out praises to him. They threw palm branches in the way, and they proclaimed him to be the Messiah, the son of David. On that evening, Jesus left the city, and he traveled back across the Mount of Olives to Bethany, and there he spent the night. And then on Monday morning, he got up, and he headed back towards the city again, where off in the distance, he saw a fig tree that was full of foliage. And Jesus, being hungry because he hadn't eaten his breakfast that day, hungry because of that strenuous walk that it is to go up and down the Mount of Olives and to come from Bethany and the Uh, all that distance that he had to travel, Jesus was very hungry. And he saw this tree off in the distance, a fig tree with leaves on it, and that was very unusual for this particular time of the year. It was April, and uh, as I explained last week, at that elevation, the fig trees would normally not yet have come into foliage. But there is this peculiar property of fig trees that it gets its figs before the leaves come. And so if you see figs on a, or leaves on a fig tree, then you'd almost certainly find that there were figs there as well. But when Jesus got to the tree, he saw that there were no figs, and so Jesus cursed the tree. And that was an unusual thing for him to do. He wasn't angry about it, but he cursed this tree because he wanted to show an illustration, a very graphic illustration of what would happen to the religion of Israel that it would wither away and die. And that's what he had come to do. And so Jesus showed that the religious leaders, the, the, the people that were worshiping in Israel, they were like the fig tree. They had a lot of foliage or they had a lot of outward things that looked good, but underneath there was really nothing there. 
there was no substance there. There was nothing in their heart. And so again, like the fig tree, their religion would wither away and die. Well, from that fig tree, Jesus went on into the city and went into the temple commons, or he went into the court of the Gentiles, and there he found it was filled with buyers and sellers and cheats who had desecrated God's house. And this time Jesus was angry, and so he overturned the tables of the money changers and he drove those people out of the temple. Well, at the end of that day, the end of Monday, he left again and he went back to Bethany. And then the next morning, which is Tuesday, he came back into the city and he and the disciples passed that fig tree again, the one that Jesus had cursed, and they found that the fig tree had just dried up. It withered away right down to the roots. It was completely dead. So back into the city he went, and this is where we find him here on this Tuesday in the temple teaching the people. Mark tells us that he was walking as he talked, and that was customary for teachers in that time. They would walk along as they were teaching, and their students would follow them as they passed through the different porticos of the temple. And it happens that Jesus, being as popular as he was, he was just really attracting a lot of attention. There were many, many people that were following him. And Jesus' following was actually far greater than any of the other teachers that came to the temple area. And you can imagine, among a lot of other things that had happened, that just incensed the religious leaders. They hated his popularity because that's what they were all about. They were all about their popularity. Well, we might ask the question then, what was Jesus teaching these people as he walked? In the book of Luke, it says that he was teaching them the gospel. And then another thing that we know is that Jesus' favorite subject was the kingdom. He's always talking about the kingdom. So I can very well imagine that Jesus was tying up some of the loose ends of things that people didn't understand about him. It is the last week of his life. Soon he would die. And so I'm sure that he was telling them that he was the king who was promised to come. And he was the one who could save them from their sins. But the Jewish leader saw the following... And they saw how he rode into town on the donkey and people were shouting his praises. They saw how the poor and the blind and the lame came to him and they followed him and he healed them. And they saw that Jesus made no attempts to shudder the shouts of praise that were made. And then they saw him as he came into the temple and he cleaned it out. He threw out the cronies of the religious leaders that were helping him to cheat the people. And they saw the crowds that had gathered for his teachings and they saw how popular that it was. And they saw and they saw and they saw and they finally said, we have seen enough of him. We've seen enough of Jesus, so let's try to get rid of him. And so they wanted to prove once and for all that he was not a true teacher, that he was someone who did not have any authority and there was no reason for people to listen to him. Now, in part number one of this message today, we're going to concentrate on just this one thing. It's one thing today, and that is the challenge to Christ's authority, the challenge to his authority. Verse number 23 says that the chief priests and the elders came while he was teaching in the temple. Mark adds that the scribes also came. Now, what we have here is actually a full representation of the Jewish Sanhedrin which was the highest religious authority in the land of Israel. So the priests came, and their representative of all the priests that served in the temple 
That would be from the high priest who held the position of Aaron all the way down to the priest that carried about the daily ministrations of the temple. The priests were there representing all of them. There were the scribes that came. And the scribes are the religious lawyers. They're the ones that know all about the regulations of the Jewish law. They know all the little nitpicking things that people needed to do to be acceptable in their worship to God, at least according to them. And then there were the elders. Those are the respected leaders that have been around for a long time. These are people like, that were wealthy like Nicodemus. There were many of them that are rabbis that did the very same thing that Jesus was doing, teaching the people. So here we have this representative group of all these religious leaders, and they are actually the authority for who could and who could not teach in the temple. So they came, and they wanted to know, where did Jesus get his authority to be there? Because they're not the ones who gave him, gave him authority. And you have to understand that that's a part of their responsibility, and we can't fault them for that. This is part of the responsibility they took upon themselves to tell who could and who could not speak at the Jewish temple. And the people respected that authority because they wanted someone to guard against some false teacher coming in and teaching things he wasn't supposed to say and leading the people down the wrong path. And so they came to question him about authority. Where did he get the authority to do these things? Now notice the question. By what authority doest thou these things? Well, what things? Accepting the praise of the people as if he was a king. Cleansing the temple by driving their cronies out. Teaching the gospel to people. Why are you here Where did you get the authority to do this? Well, let's talk about that for a few minutes. Every year, I go to the Shepherds Conference down in L.A., and at this conference, there are thousands of preachers that come from all over the world, and there are some of the top preachers in the United States that preach there. And at this conference, they have their beliefs and they have their agenda, which for the most part I think is right. And so they, they uh, have certain preachers that will preach from their pulpit. But let's suppose that there was someone who came to the conference and he wanted to preach. And so he walked onto the church grounds and he went to places where people would gather and he began to preach to them and he started preaching things that were completely different from what uh, the preachers were preaching in the pulpit of the church and what the conference had been organized around, the truths that they believed. What would happen if somebody came in and just took off preaching and preached anything that he wanted to preach? Well, interestingly enough, that actually did happen in this very same church just a couple of months ago at the Strange Fire Conference, that there was someone who came in who was not a part of that group, and he was passing out books and and saying some things that uh, those people didn't believe. Well, wouldn't you think that someone would come and approach that person and they would say, who gave you the authority to preach here? Who told you that you could teach these things? Oh, we would expect them to do that. They, they have every right to do that. They can say who preaches from their pulpit, who doesn't. Some of you that have been here for quite a while, you may remember that once on a Sunday morning, there was a man who stood up right over here next to the curtain And he stood up and he said, announced to the congregation, and he said, I am Peter. And he wanted to address the congregation. Well, far be it from me to keep Peter from preaching. 
But for some reason, the ushers didn't believe that that's who he was, and so they took that guy out. Now, maybe some of you didn't know this, but there's an usher who stands out in the, in the foyer there, and he has a 9 millimeter under his coat. Just, he's, he's just waiting for someone to try to disturb the services. But we are the ones, we are the ones who have the authority to say who can speak in this pulpit. And that's one of my responsibilities as the pastor of the church, not to let anyone come and speak from this pulpit and not tell you the truth from God's word. You expect me to do that. We're going to stop somebody who doesn't have the right authority. And that's why this delegation from the Sanhedrin was there to see Jesus. You don't have our authority. Now, I want to explore that some in a couple of weeks when we come back to it about his authority because uh, he was in his house, not theirs, and he was teaching God's doctrines, not theirs. Well, you can imagine how jealous that they were. Uh, Jesus had drawn a crowd as he always did. Crowds are always following him around. And he had become more popular than all of their rabbis together. And that became a terribly embarrassing thing to them, especially at Passover time. I mean, here is the the time when Jerusalem is filled with people. There's more activity going on in Jerusalem at this time than any other time of the year. And here is this fellow preaching what he's preaching. People all over the world are there. And this is not the time for somebody we don't know to stand up and steal our thunder. I mean, what these priests wanted to do, it's their time at Passover to strut their stuff. I mean, this is the time for them to be recognized. And they look forward to Passover. They look forward to the adulation uh, that they would receive from the people, uh, the, 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 the crowds that would gather around them as they came to watch the priests offer those many sacrifices at the temple. And so when they would rock around the temple area or when they were out in the streets of Jerusalem, people would say, wow, there goes one of the priests. And they would stand back and kind of awe and say, look at him as he goes by and his dress and his fine accoutrements and everything that he has. He's one of the priests. And you find this a lot. If you ever go to the Bible conferences, you find the same thing going on. When the big preacher gets up after he's done preaching and all the all the people want to follow that preacher out and they want to get his autograph and their Bible and they want to get their picture taken with him. Well, these rabbis, uh, these priests, they're all about this kind of thing. Uh, They don't want anybody to steal the attention away from them because that's what they're all about. They're always playing to the crowd. Their long prayers that they made, the alms that they gave, the clothes that they wear, all of it was to bring attention to them. So they didn't want Jesus in there drawing away their attention. But there he is. Here's a guy who comes in riding in on a donkey... And people crying out to him and saying that he's the Messiah. This fellow has been wearing the same clothes for days. He has holes in his sandals. And everybody's paying attention to him, hanging on every word. And so they got together and they said, let's put a stop to that. Let's embarrass him. Let's expose him by showing that he has no authority at all. And so they asked the question, by what authority do you do these things? Who gave you this authority? Now, the first question has to do with the nature of his authority. Does he say these things because he's a prophet? Does he say them because he holds the prophetic office? Does he say them because he has some kind of political power behind him? Just what is the nature of this authority? 
Second question, they say, who gave you the authority? That's a question about the source. People are still confused about the source of Jesus' authority. Cults like Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons, they're confused about the authority of Jesus. But what they hoped for was that Jesus would be stumped, that he would have to admit that he has no authority. They didn't give him, the priest didn't give him authority, so he actually has no authority to be there. And so the people would reject him. And they thought that they were crafty and wise, but Jesus would catch them in their own deceit and actually get them to condemn themselves. In 1 Corinthians, the apostle Paul quoted a proverb from Job. He said, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, for it is written, he taketh the wise in their own craftiness. So they thought that they'd set a perfect trap for Jesus. If he confesses that he has no authority, then he will be humiliated and cast out. And then if he claims authority, if he says, I'm doing this because I am the Messiah, then they'll accuse him of blasphemy. And that's exactly what they did a little bit later on in chapter 26 and verse number 65. Now, the amazing thing as I look at this, or one of the amazing things, is that these men who claimed to have authority, they have the force of their office behind them. Why didn't they just walk in and pick Jesus up and throw him out? I mean, that's what we would do if somebody came here. I mean, we try to be nice to everybody. But if you come in and you overstep your authority, go beyond your bounds, and you do something you're not supposed to do, and you're adamant about that, and you keep it up, we're going to escort you out of the building. But these guys didn't do that. They couldn't do it to Jesus. Jesus kept them at bay by an authority that they wouldn't even recognize. And did you know that it was not until Jesus said that they could that they were actually able to take him and to crucify him? Because they didn't have authority. He did, and that's what kept them from taking him at this time. But here they are. They're trying to set the trap. They think Jesus can't get out of this. And they don't use their authority, not what they thought that they had. And how foolish it was because they had to have known this wasn't going to work. They'd never won a confrontation with him yet. Every time that they tried to trap Jesus, he always got out of it. This time will end no differently. But the thing that's different about this time, this encounter is the height of their embarrassment, of all the confrontations that they had with him. This is what really fueled the flame so hot that it ensured that Jesus would be crucified in this week. He would not escape Jerusalem. The only way that he was going to be carried out was in a body bag. And strangely enough, that was exactly what Jesus intended. He fully intended. This is his week. He came for the Passover. He came in riding on that donkey as the Lamb of God, and he was determined to be crucified in this week. And so he allowed the hatred of him to be escalated to a fever pitch to be sure that they would crucify him. Now, you need to be, 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 be aware of this. Make no mistake about this, that Jesus is always in control. You don't need to be sad because Jesus died. Don't mourn for him because there was a good life that ended, and so much more could have been done if Jesus lived beyond 33 years. You know what the Bible says? The Bible teaches that Jesus did everything that he intended to do. On the cross, the very last words that he spoke was, it is finished. And he meant that 
There's nothing left for me to do. I have accomplished everything the Heavenly Father gave me. Don't mourn over Jesus. The Heavenly Father and Jesus himself orchestrated everything that took place in this last week of his life. Now notice Jesus' reply, verse number 24. And Jesus answered and said unto them, I also will ask you one thing, which if ye tell me, I and likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus replied to their question with a question. Now, we would say, well, he's evading the issue. He won't answer the question. But no, Jesus is not evading. This is a common rabbinical way of teaching. This is one of the ways that they taught. It's not evasion because Jesus says, if you answer the question that I ask you, then you'll have the answer to your question. He said, if, if you tell me this, I'll tell you where I get my authority. And he would do that without even having to say another word. Because if they answer the question correctly, they will have the answer to their question. Now, I hope you got that because Jesus, who is omniscient, can never be asked something that he doesn't know. Jesus knows everything, nothing that he can't answer. He is all wisdom. He can't be caught in a trap that he can't spring. So here is his question. The baptism of John, whence was it, from heaven or of men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we shall say from heaven, he will say unto us, Why did ye not then believe him? He asked, Where did John get his authority to baptize. Was it from heaven? And that means, did he get it from God or was it from men? And that was an agonizing question for them. Of all the things that he asked, nothing was feared and as confounding as this question. Why? Because the people thought of John as a prophet that had been sent by God. If you were to ask the people this question, they could answer it in a heartbeat, no hesitation. Now, John the Baptist was dead by this time, but his ministry, the things that he taught, was still fresh in their minds. John was a, a great prophet, they thought. He was a very popular prophet because John promised what the people wanted the most, and that was a Messiah to come and to deliver them. Now, what had happened to John, Herod killed him, Herod beheaded him, and by this time, Herod himself had been deposed, and there was another king sitting on the throne. That was Aretas. And the people thought that that was judgment upon Herod for killing John the Baptist. So John the Baptist was highly regarded by the people. Now I want you to turn back to Matthew chapter 3, if you would, for just a moment. And this is where we find the introduction of John the Baptist, where he comes on the scene and he's preaching. In Matthew chapter 3, and in verse number 1, Matthew 3, verse number 1, it says, In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then go down to verse number 5. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. All the people went out to hear John the Baptist. There were hundreds that were baptized by him. And what John was doing was preparing the way for Jesus to come. And he told the people, what you need to do is to repent of your sins. You need to confess. You need to be ready when the Messiah comes. You need to be ready to receive him. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees weren't so sure about it, and they rejected John's teaching because he was a threat to them. 
just like Jesus was a threat to them. And so John became a huge problem for them. So when Jesus asked the question, they're caught on the horns of a dilemma. And so they drew back and they huddled together and they began to discuss this, how are we going to answer him? So here's the problem. What happens if they say that John's baptism is from heaven? Or in other words, that Almighty God is the one who gave the authority for John to baptize. And understand this, when the scripture talks about John's baptism, that's just a euphemism for everything that John taught, all of his ministry. It means everything. And one of those things that John taught was that these Pharisees and Sadducees, these same religious leaders that were there speaking to Jesus at this time, these are people who also need to repent. They also need to get right with God. They're sinners. But they wouldn't admit that they were sinners. That's, that's one of their big problems. They're just like people today. We've not done anything wrong. We've not done anything seriously wrong. We're pretty good people. Everybody thinks like that. But John told them, you're the best religious leaders in the land, but you are sinners and you need to repent of your sin. Just like people today need to repent. Now you read on further in chapter 3 and you see how that John told them that the axe was about to be laid to the root of the tree. And he meant that this Messiah is coming to cut down your religion. He's come to destroy it from the face of the earth. And it's the very same message that we saw in the fig tree last week. The same emblem is right here with John the Baptist. And he was just preaching hard against these people. Now, I know there's some of you who think that I have too much harsh things to say about false religions. But you'll notice something about Jesus and John. He had no problem naming any of them. He had no problem telling who's saying the truth and who's not. So John preached against them. Well, was that from God? Well, that'd be a serious admission for them to make, wouldn't it? How can they say that's from God? But you know the most important thing about John's ministry and the thing that hurt these leaders the most? It's what he said about Jesus. John was out there preaching in the wilderness, and he kept telling people the Messiah is coming. He said, you think that I'm a great prophet? There is another prophet who's coming. There is another one who's coming that I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. He said, when this man comes, when this great person comes, his ministry must increase and mine must decrease. And so John kept preaching that. He kept telling the people that until one day he stopped and he looked up and he saw Jesus in the way. And he pointed his finger at him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And that's the huge dilemma. John said Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the promised one. The many prophecies of the Old Testament have now come true because here is the Messiah. So that's the same as saying that Jesus is God. He is the Savior of the world. Now, do you see how convicting that would be? Do you, do you, do you see how convicting that ought to be to your own heart? Do you, do you see how such an important statement that is, that if Jesus is declared to be God and the Bible says that Jesus is God, then the question is, why don't you surrender to him? Why don't you give your life to him? If there's an authority above all, of heaven and earth, and he tells you to bow the knee to him, why don't you do it? 
You see, their problem is your problem if you challenge the authority of Jesus over your life. Well, these fellows got together and they enunciated their problem very distinctly in the deliberations. And they, they said, if we say that John's baptism was from heaven, then he's going to say, why didn't you believe him? That's a problem, isn't it? I mean, do you understand the dilemma? That's the same as yours. If you don't surrender to God, one day God's going to judge you and God's going to say to you, why didn't you believe him? And there are many people, maybe somebody here today, maybe some of you say, well, I believe in God. Oh, I believe, I believe that Jesus is real. I believe that Jesus came into the world and Jesus died on the cross and I believe that Jesus died to save us from our sins. And you may confess all of that and God is going to say to you, then why don't you do what he says? Why don't you obey him? Why don't you live your life for him if you believe all those things are true? You see, people who say that they're Christians, they're going to have to answer those kind of questions to God. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And God's going to say, if you loved him, like you said, why didn't you keep his commandments? Why don't you live for him? Well, it's a horrible dilemma. They're, they're the religious leaders. They have responsibility of presenting the truth. And what they've done is they have refused the messenger and the message that's been sent from God. So now, if they turn around and they acknowledge this, they lose their position. If they say John is right, this is a message sent from God, then they must believe him or they're not true spokesmen for God. So it's a question of authority. If they reject that John came from God, they reject God's authority, and that makes them confessed opponents of God. So imagine how bad it would be for these proud, self-righteous, arrogant people to now change their tune and say, well, yes, John's ministry was right. He did receive his authority from God. That means that these big shots that are all about self have to bow before the one who is their worst enemy, take up his mantle and be like him and become the servants of men. And they weren't about to do it. No way they're going to do it. So that's their first problem. No way that they can say John's baptism is from heaven. That forces them to admit John was correct in identifying Jesus as the Messiah. So they have to admit this heavenly authority of Jesus if they admit the true authority of John. So do you see how his question answers their question? If they get this right, they know where the authority came from. But that's just one of the problems. They say, yes, John's baptism was from heaven. They've acknowledged Jesus is the Son of God. But what if they say, no, his baptism was not from heaven? Verse 26, but if we shall say of men, we fear the people, for all hold John as a prophet. So that second problem is the people thought that John was a prophet. They definitely believed he was a prophet. Now, I'm talking about prophet in the sense of Elijah in the sense of Jeremiah, a prophet like Isaiah in the Old Testament. That's what they thought about John the Baptist. Now, that's an important thing, very important thing for the Sanhedrin. Now, they would never make a big deal out of this, but they sheepishly also held that John was a prophet. Now, what I mean is they feigned to believe it. They pretended like they believed it because they wanted to hold on to their popularity but they were very low-key about it. And so they're not about now to, to shout it out and say that there is a connection between John and the divine. 
And so they pretended about it. They said, well, we're, we're in there somewhere on your side. We're positive about it in some ways. But now to get vocal about it and to openly deny it, the people would turn against them. In Luke it says, they feared the people would stone them. Now, I don't know if we have any Middle Easterners here today, and, and I don't mean this as a derogatory comment, but people in that part of the world can get very hot-headed about religion. Are you aware of that? I mean, I mean, what in the world's going on over there? I mean, people in that area of the world, they're very, very, very hot-headed about religion, and the Jewish people were no different. Religion was big business to them, very important to them. Their prophets were serious. Stepping on their religion was a very serious issue. And the Romans knew that. And that's why they let the Jews practice their religion with only necessary interference. Rome knew that if you get all over their religion, you start stepping on that, it's going to be hard to keep peace in all these outlying areas of the empire. And so they let the Jews practice their religion as they wanted, you know, up to a certain bounds. Well, for a little insight on that kind of thing about the nature of these people about religion, go to Acts chapter 7 and see what happened to Stephen. When Stephen challenged the conventional religious leaders, the religious thought, what did they do to him? They stoned him. The apostle Paul in Acts chapter uh, 21 and 22 was accused of taking a Gentile into the temple and Paul just barely escaped with his life. That's what these leaders are up against. This, this is really just a big dose of their own medicine. If they say John is not a prophet, they've got problems. So they reasoned among themselves, and they found they had nowhere to go. Now, can I add something to this? That, that Jesus was not out just to win an argument. What Jesus would have liked nothing better was for these men to admit the truth. Now, even though they were his sworn enemies, do you know what Jesus would have done if they admitted the truth? He would have opened up his arms and gladly embraced them. He doesn't hold any grudges. When a person comes to him in repentant faith and acknowledging him as the Lord, it doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, where you've been. Jesus will put his arms around you and embrace you into the fold when you trust him. And, and this, this is what Jesus told them. I mean, a little bit later, he stood up looking over the city of Jerusalem and he wept over it. And he said, if you would just come to me, I, w I would take you like a mother chicken gathers her little chicklets, chickens under her, under her wings and I'll protect you. That's what he promised. You know what God said? God said, I don't have any pleasure in the death of the wicked. In Isaiah chapter 33, 11, it says, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked will turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways. Oh, why will ye die, O house of Israel? And so though they were bitter enemies of Jesus, he would save them. And next time, we'll look a little bit more into that aspect of it. Now, we need to remember that about everybody. All of us are enemies of God. All of us have gone our stubborn way. We're all hostile against God, but the Bible says that he will save us if we come to him. He has mercy and compassion upon the lost. So the Sanhedrin delegates are stuck. They can't answer Jesus in any way in their favor unless they were to admit that he is truly God, then he would save them 
but they're not out for salvation. They don't care about salvation, at least not the way he wants to give it to them. They don't want salvation his way. Now, that, that's a really a peculiar thing. You find that people today don't want salvation God's way. You know how they would rather have salvation? Let me try to earn my way to heaven. Let, let me try to do this list of things that a priest has given me to do. Let me do all of these things, and let me keep all of these sacraments, and let me try all these different methods, and I'll get to heaven that way. I'll earn my way there. And how ignorant is that and foolish is it for someone to say, I'll work my way to heaven, when God says, you can have it free. You don't have to work for it. I, my grace is sufficient. I'll give it to you. You just trust me. But people have their own way, which the Bible says is the way of destruction, but we don't like people interfering with our religion just like these Jews didn't like anybody interfering with theirs. And so we try the hard way that won't work when God says, well, you can have it just by asking for it. So they aren't looking for the truth. They want to win the argument. They want to discredit Jesus to maintain their position. But Jesus foiled them by discrediting them. And so they have no answer. What, what do they say? Do they, do they say John's baptism is from heaven or do they say it's from men? What do they say? Verse 27. And they answered Jesus and said, We cannot tell. And he said unto them, Neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. Their answer, we don't know. Yes, they did know. All the proof was there, but they weren't interested in the proof or the truth. They said, we don't know. You know what happens when you corner an atheist with the facts of who God is? You know what an atheist says? He'll finally come to the place where he'll say, I don't know. And you know what happens when you corner a religionist? He becomes an agnostic. When he can't answer questions, he says, I don't know. You know, it sounds big, doesn't it? I am an agnostic. It just means, I'm a, I don't know. I, I have no idea. I just don't know. Well, does saying I don't know help them? I don't know is not really an option. I mean, they're, the, they're supposed to be the authority themselves, and they're asking Jesus about authority, and they're supposed to know. They can't say, I don't know. That's tantamount to a confession of defeat. So the crowd is standing around listening to all this, and you know they had to put out the, the word that Jesus and the religious leaders are back at it again. And, and they, they, they love to see this kind of thing because they were tired of the oppression that they were receiving from those religious leaders. And so Jesus and the religious leaders are at it again. And here he is nailing those leaders to the wall. And they say, we don't know. And that just crushed their authority. Well, you can be sure of this. Jesus knows everything. He's an authority on everything. You can bank on it. And he's not going to say, I don't know. Now, I've got to hurry here. It's a two-part sermon. That's because I can't ever get everything in. So we're going to hurry here. Think back just a moment. Think about what I said about those evolutionists at the beginning. People trust them as the authority for how we got here. But all of them have a problem with what happened at the beginning. Where did the first something come from? Stephen Hawking says something came from nothing. It created itself. Why does he say that? Because he can't say, I don't know. If he says, I don't know, then... Who's going to listen to him? 
I mean, that's what these scientists and, and the theorists and the physicists and the evolutionists are doing all the time. What are they doing? They keep proposing theories. And what happens to their theories? They keep finding out they're wrong. Why don't they just in the beginning say, I don't know? Well, the reason is they've got to stay, stay one step ahead of I don't know. And so they've always got a new theory that it takes a little bit of time to disprove that it's wrong. And we get it, don't we? They don't know. They're not authorities on anything concerning origins unless they admit that God created the heavens and the earth. And that's the dilemma here. They can't say, we don't know, because then they can't be authorities on anything that has to do with God. Well, there is just too much to finish today. These are power-packed verses, and the teaching of Jesus all the way up to the end, it's this, it is all authoritative. Now, in the second part of this, Jesus will give a parable in which he ties up these loose ends and makes another self-indictment, that they are not the people of God, even though they so strongly protested that they were. Now, let me just tell you something, though, before we go today, that you can trust Jesus. He never says, I don't know. He answers all of your questions. He solves all of your problems. He knows those solutions. He knows what you're all about. So you don't want to be like these people when it comes to Jesus. You don't want to say no. And you don't want to say, I don't know. Because those answers will condemn you for eternity. You must be like the Apostle Paul who said, For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. And we have to be like the Apostle John who said, And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, what? That ye may know that you have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Sometime read First John, take a pencil and circle the numbers of times that John says, we know, we know, this is written so that you know, we know, we know, we know. No doubt, when you have your faith in Christ, there is no doubt. You know, I'm thankful for this. I know who Jesus is. I know who he is. And I hope that you know him too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you came to give us salvation, and we praise your wonderful name for the sacrifice that was made for our sins. I do pray, Lord, if there's someone here today who questions in their mind about what they should believe about Jesus. The word of God is clear. He is declared to be the Son of God. He is declared to be God himself. He is declared to be the one who saves us from our sins. And we pray, Lord, that they would just recognize that and believe it, and Jesus will save them. Lord, thank you again for those who have come today and help us to serve you better through what we've learned. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 
888-949-9428. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.